With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Jamie Weinstein. You may have heard me last week hosting the Monday edition of the Dispatch Podcast, but uh, this is actually my official launch date. Let me just give you a little bit of an introduction for those who may or may not know me. Some of you may know me from hosting the Jamie Weinstein Show, the creatively named podcast uh, I hosted for many years, doing long form interviews with people all over the ideological spectrum from Roger Stone to Ta-Nehisi Coates, where I tried to have civil but pressing conversations, pose questions that brings out something different with each of the guests and, and challenge sometimes preconceived notions. I'm going to try to bring a little bit of that here to the dispatch on Mondays, try to bring on people that disagree with me on, on some issues, and even those who agree with me, try to press them to clarify their ideas. So you'll, you'll see me interview newsmakers, as well as do what we call explainer podcasts, try to bring on an expert to explain something that's happening in the news, kind of like we did on my soft launch last week on international law. So I'm super excited to be joining the Dispatch team hosting on Mondays. So uh, I hope you will enjoy the episodes that I put out each week here every Monday. Today, we're talking with Graham Wood. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Uh, He has covered many different topics over the years, but particularly he has focused on ISIS and international terrorism. We talk about what is going on on the ground in Israel, where he is covering the Israel-Gaza conflict, and we got into a lot of different issues. But let's get right into it. Without further ado, I give you Mr. Graham Wood. It's a real pleasure to have you. I've been following your work in the Atlantic uh, closely uh, as this conflict in Israel and Gaza has unfolded. Um, I I wanted to go back to when you arrived in Israel. uh, Was it just after October 7th? And if so, what was the mood like when you got there? And and if you could compare it to what I presume have been other trips to Israel, um, the mood in the country. Yeah, I, I had been in Israel actually just a few weeks before. So I was able to do an A-B comparison that was a few weeks before and then a few days after the October 7th attack. I got off the plane uh, in Amman, actually. There were all these flights that were getting canceled. So even just getting in, unless you were taking El Al, which pretty much went steady, but it wasn't flying from where I was, uh, was, was still going. Otherwise, you had to figure out a, a, how to improvise a way in. So I crossed in from Jordan, got to Jerusalem, and I, the, the atmosphere was kind of creepy, honestly. I mean, I've, I've been to Jerusalem many times. It's a tourist city. It's obviously a city of pilgrimage, a holy city. Uh, and it was, had the atmosphere of mourning um, and also just a lot of silence. You know, you walk around a city that you're used to being filled with you know, souvenir sales, salesmen, touts. And then you get the sense instead that there's uh, been um, literally a death in the family. Uh, and then also that a lot of the people who are usually there are just gone. So I, I walked through the old city one one day and uh, met 
zero tourists and most of the salespeople were, were, uh, had closed up. So the few people I spoke to, they, many of them had the same comment, which was, we thought I'd, we'd never experience this again after COVID, but the streets are empty. Now, the other interesting thing about Jerusalem, of course, is that it has a pretty large ultra-Orthodox population. And curiously, the, 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 that population seemed to be going about business as usual in their neighborhoods of the city. So Israel's always a funny place. It was funnier than usual then. Have you made it to Tel Aviv? And is, is it the atmosphere the same there? And obviously Tel Aviv is known to be a much more lively city, certainly in the evenings. Do you see the same mood in, in a city like that? Yeah, I've been in Tel Aviv too, and it's quite different from Jerusalem always, of course. Um, one way it's different uh, nowadays is that it gets many more rocket attacks. So Hamas throwing rockets at Jerusalem is very likely to hit uh, areas that are sacred or that are filled with Palestinians. Tel Aviv, less likely. Um, the other thing about Tel Aviv is that uh, it doesn't have the same number of ultra-Orthodox. The ultra-Orthodox Israelis... Uh, Israeli Jews um, typically don't serve in the military. So in the days after the attack, when I arrived, all these reservists were being called up. All these soldiers were, were showing up for duty, whether they were called up or not. And that meant Tel Aviv was disproportionately um, feeling that. So it, it's both more, more often hit by those rockets and more hit socially by the fact that many people were going off to war and no longer on the streets having a good time. There are some reports that uh, the ultra-Orthodox actually for the first time or, you know, one of the, you know, they're actually showing up to, to serve. Ha have you seen any of that or uh, is that uh, an exaggeration? No, it's, it's not an exaggeration. It's, it's true. Uh, I, I've not actually seen the ultra-Orthodox showing up to serve, but actually even before October 7th, there was more talk about it than... Um, than one might think. You know, these communities, the, the deal is they get these exemptions. Uh, the men are supposed to be studying Jewish sacred texts. That's what they do all, all day. And if you have that exemption, you don't have to serve in the military. Um, and there was this understanding um, that this couldn't really go on forever in the following sense. The ultra-Orthodox population was growing as a share of the population so fast that if you have 8% of the population not serving in the military in a security state like Israel, can manage that. But if they're growing, doubling every, I don't know how many decades, then eventually you get 50% of the population that's not serving in the military, and that's unsustainable. So I, I think the ultra-Orthodox community, they understood that this couldn't go on forever. And, and there was on the kind of down low some talk about, okay, we've got to figure out a way so that we uh, are part of a sustainable Israel that also is an Israel that, that uh, is friendly to our way of life. So that, that, that was already happening and it's definitely accelerated since October 7th. The story of, let's say October 6th uh, in Israel was a divided country. And let's say October 8th is a more united country. What is the unity towards other than obviously defeating Hamas? Is, are, are they unified in other ways that you know, we watching from abroad might not realize? Yeah, uh, the, the first way that they're unified is that they all hate the Israeli state. Um, they're unified, of course, despising Hamas, despising um, the massacres, but also it, you would be amazed at, at the range of Israeli political persuasion, demographic origin, that just come together and thinking that the Israeli state, not just the government, but the state failed them. Um, so 
like if you looked at the, there's a the current government is well known to be quite right wing and it had a um, strong backing from uh, working class, uh, ultra orthodox, as well as Mizrahi, that is uh, Middle East, North Africa, rather than from from Europe um, population. And some of those people who were reliably pro-government just expressed hatred uh, toward the government and toward the idea of Israel that they thought had shortchanged them in the extreme. They, they thought there's no point in Israel other than to be a place where this kind of thing doesn't happen. And we had signed on completely to the idea of, of, of Israel, to this government. They let us down so completely that we're simply disgusted. And then to, to add to that, of course, there was uh, the hundreds of thousands of people who opposed the right-wing government, uh, who, were all, who already hated the government, and who were just confirmed in their view that the government was incompetent, that it was failing at its most basic uh, um, uh, basic tasks. So everybody agreed uh, in the days afterward that Hamas had to be destroyed, and everybody agreed that the state of Israel was not um, something that you, they could look at with anything but cynical eyes going forward. Well, that's a difficult situation you would think to be in, to one, to all believe to want to take on a very difficult mission to dismantle Hamas, but at the same time not believe the government who's in charge of you know, formulating a plan with the military to do so is competent to do it. How does that get reconciled? Do they just, you know, allow the government to con to continue on to try to accomplish this mission and, and wait until afterwards to see what happened on October 7th? Or is it possible that you could have a transition of leadership in the midst of war? I think it's unlikely that the transition would happen. You know, the last thing I did before I left Israel, before the attack, was see the Helen Mirren movie Golda, and uh, I've spoken to a lot of Israelis who have seen that recently, and they they uh, they think back to it because they they saw uh, Golda Meir and the Yom Kippur War of 1973 uh, also have an extreme intelligence failure, and they this is the template that's in people's minds about what to expect of their their leaders. That is that the the war will happen. There will be no change, at least in the very early days of the war. Probably not even in the middle. But afterward, there will be a reckoning. And a lot of the people who thought they and their, their cohort would be around and, and leading Israel forever uh, will be kicked to the curb. Uh, there will be a commission, there will be recrimination, and there will be change. Um, but I don't think that's something that anybody expects to happen right now. But you know, in, in a year, in two years, I would be shocked if Benjamin Netanyahu is still in charge of the government. I would also be shocked if the different command chiefs of the IDF are still in power. Um, it was a failure, unlike anything. And if 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 there's not any um, follow through uh, and responsibility taken, then uh, well, that cynicism is surely justified. That that kind of leads into your most recent piece, the the theory of Hamas's uh, catastrophic success, um, in which you suggest from your reporting, uh, which goes against some conventional wisdom. You meant you uh, uh, write about Hussein Yabish's idea that Hamas was trying to draw the IDF into Gaza, um, that that you you write that they were shocked almost that the IDF's Gaza wing just was nowhere to in, in, a, in, a, in a large sense to stop them. Uh, and this will obviously go into the the hearings that ultimately will come into what happened on October 7th. But it's still a question that puzzles 
someone like me who has been to Israel six times, it's hard to go very far without seeing uh, a lot of IDF soldiers. Is there is there any sense of how Hamas was so successful in in that awful sadistic operation on October 7th? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of different answers to that. There, there are tactical questions, like how did they blind the IDF uh, on the, the Gaza border? You know, there, there's some borders of Israel that, that famously, they're, they're so tightly locked down electronically that a bird cannot fly over without the IDF knowing what species it was. So just to that point on, on the Gaza fence, I mean, it used to be the government would brag about it was 100% successful in stopping tariffs getting through the fence. Uh, I, I don't know if that was the case up until the date, but I think it, it probably was that no terrorists had gotten through the fence until October 7th. I mean, there had been attacks. There had been attacks on on checkpoints in particular. So, um, but an actual penetration onto Israeli territory, um, that was un, unheard of, unforeseen, um, let alone keeping that territory over the course of hours. Um, and, you know, I, I suggest in my piece that Hamas didn't expect that success. Israelis didn't expect that kind of failure either. Um, you know, I, I've been to some of those kibbutzim along the Gaza fence uh, and in happier times, as well as since. I've, I've visited them, their wreckage since. And um, these communities were not set up as lockdown communities for, for security purposes. It's not like they were, were some kind of you know, outpost, medieval outpost. Uh, they were like um, bedroom communities. They were they were pleasant little places where where you know seniors li- live. So um, there was no expectation of this. Now there's going to be, I'm sure, inquiries about what those tactics were that were so successful. It was partially uh, numbers, so huge numbers of people going through uh, who were armed and who had uh, detailed tactical knowledge of what was going on on the other side. There was also a bit of a bum rush of the of the border, which uh, you know now, um, in fact, even on the day, we could already see that there were ordinary Gazans going in, and um, at the very least, looting, you know, taking back kids' bikes to their to their homes and so forth. Um, there's also a, a level of um, speculation, um, and maybe a little bit more than speculation, about what it was that that allowed this to happen strategically. That is the government taking its eye off the Gaza border because it had other priorities, um, specifically the West Bank. Um, I've done some reporting on this as well uh, over the course of the last last uh, 10 months or so, which is uh, in the West Bank, there's been more and more settler activity, more outposts being built illegally. Uh, and I say illegally, meaning illegally under Israeli law. They're not supposed to build anything. Um, and to do that, means that there's going to be more clashes with Palestinians in the West Bank. And it's a matter of objective fact that, that there was a lot of attention that had to be paid to the West Bank because of those clashes. And, uh, and attention is a, is a finite resource. So there's a, a, a lot of recrimination about what the, what the priorities of the government were if those resources took away, were taken away from, from Gaza and left the, the, the Israelis on that border undefended. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Lucky! 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You write about the videos themselves. You were part of, a, I guess, a group of international journalists and maybe local journalists who uh, the government showed some of the videos from uh, October 7th. Um, and you describe them in, in uh, some gruesome detail. I'm sure there's more there that you left out. For some of the listeners may not know, you covered ISIS quite, you know, uh, extensively. The The brutality of that day, at least projected uh, so openly to the world by the terrorists themselves, and on that scale, I had not seen before. But someone who has covered ISIS and other terror groups was this on a scale and sadism that you had not seen before, or was it in line with the type of attacks you saw by ISIS? Uh, the sadism was comparable. Um, you know, the, the film critic Roger Ebert, he, he has this story about going to in his early years as a journalist covering a uh, carnival. He was told that there's a guy, the Barker said, we have the best geek in the world. What does a geek do? He says, he bites the heads off of chickens and and... Ebert asked, well, what's the difference between a good geek and a bad geek? And the Barker said, do you want to look at the chickens? It, it's kind of like that, where you could draw gradations between the barbarity of ISIS and of Hamas, uh, between the, the grotesque things that you see in the videos of one group and the other. It, to some degree, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're both maximally sadist, sadistic organizations at the moment they make these videos. Uh, what I noticed as someone who spent years watching everything that, that ISIS put out uh, and trying to understand why they were doing this, talking to their, their members, um, what was striking to me is that w- with, with Hamas, um, the videos are indeed sadistic. They are much less ordered uh, than the ISIS videos tended to be. ISIS would have, first of all, much greater... Uh, production values, but they would kind of explain why they were doing what they were doing. They would they would pronounce a sentence. Uh, they would read the the scriptural basis for their sentence, and then they would carry it out. And that that sentence might be burning someone alive. It might be cutting someone's head off. But there would be this this kind of uh, high minded explanation in, in an ideological way of why they were doing what they were doing, and it was always done in cold in cold blood. The Hamas videos are different. Uh, you see them doing things that are every bit as grotesque, like chopping someone's head off with a blunt gardening instrument. But they're doing it in a, in a, they've gone berserk. Um, not that they didn't intend to do these things when they, when they went in, but the, the, um, the evidence of premeditation is, is different. And the high mindedness of the violence is also not really there. Um, the desire to do the will of God because the end of the world is coming, that's pretty high-minded. And then with, with Hamas, uh, it looks like random people in tracksuits in some cases who have gone in and are doing the most unspeakable things. And uh, you, you just catch yourself wondering, well, why would you do this? I know, I know you don't like Israelis, but there's lots of people I don't like who I wouldn't do this to. Um, it's not clear how this is really in the end going to get you your land back if that's what you want. So it, it's, it's a very upsetting 43 minutes that, of, of video that, that have, have been released for the eyes of journalists. Uh, and I, I, I still 
uh, am upset by it and have trouble figuring out exactly what what's going on and why. Are you surprised by the the denialism that still exists uh, about what occurred? Um, you see, um, some people question whether you know babies were burned and and whatnot. Um, with the extensive video and the, and the journalists that have seen it and, and reported on it, did that does that surprise you at all? Uh, no, only because I I guess I have a pretty dark view of, of human nature and of people's willingness to believe what they have to believe to to continue with their political priors. I mean, there's a lot of people who are simply incapable because of their commitment to one side of this conflict, incapable of believing that the side that they're on would do horrible things. And so when they, when they see, you know, when they're told that there are images of a Thai farm worker being beheaded, uh, then the only way that they, as a matter of self-protection, the only way that they can, 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 can deal with that cognitive dissonance is, is to deny that, it, that it's happened. And, you know, this is a contemptible reaction, but it's, it's one that human psychology would, would predict. I mean, the, the way that a lot of people who, you know, are tearing down posters of kidnapped children who are in Gaza, um, I don't believe that these people are uniformly sociopathic. I, I, I think that when they see these these posters, many of them, you know, they, they react like a Westworld robot who you just showed an iPad. It's like I, I, I don't, I guess I don't believe. I don't, I don't know what that is. And then they, they, um, they do these. Yeah, they they react accordingly and and just slide back into those political priors and take down what they think of as the posters of their enemies. I guess I, I meant to ask this up front. Have you ever been in Gaza um, in any of your trips to Israel? I have. Uh, it, it, would be a, it would be false to say that I know Gaza well. The only area of Gaza that I've been into is Rafah, which is the city that is on the edge of the of the Egyptian border. And that was about 20 years ago. You write in one of your earlier articles and what is Israel's goals in their response in Gaza. And, and my question is that you see a lot of people here in the U.S. and sometimes understandably, you know, isn't there another way to go about dismantling Hamas uh, or responding without the consequence of civilians dying in Gaza? And I, and I guess my question for you is having talked to people on the ground, uh, I presume security officials, is there a possible way to to accomplish defeating Hamas or dismantling Hamas without massive destruction of uh, both terrorist and an uh, innocent life in Gaza? I mean, you could also ask: Is there a way of defeating Hamas with that that devastation? Um, the, Hamas has you know external offices, and there are a lot of people who just believe it, believe in it. So that that's 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 one end of of the analysis that you have to think about. Now, could Hamas be taken? apart without uh, massive civilian casualties. Um, no one I've spoken to believes that that is possible. Um, it, it was, especially in the early days after the attack, there was this air of sadness and resignation that, yes, uh, we're just going to do this. Um, there, there's no, there was a sense that in the past, we were going to feel out the possible political solutions. We were going to have some conversations, maybe even just behind the scenes. And instead, Israelis thought, uh, we're not going to have any conversations because the, we can't trust them at all. Apparently, what they're willing to do is way more than we thought they were willing to do. And so all we can think about 
is destroying their capability, what they can do rather than, the, than what they will. Those are the, the, the things that we can, we can deal with. But there was also an understanding that, that uh, the number of Israeli IDF dead uh, in such an operation could be in the thousands. Uh, and an understanding that, that Palestinian dead, which I don't think were weighed or are weighed uh, the same way that Israeli dead are, but that there was also an understanding that there would be civilian dead on that side that would be quite a bit higher. Um, but no, not a way to, 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 to deal with that. I, I will be delighted to discover that that's not true and that uh, the invasion, which you know now is, we're about a week into it, um, bears enough fruit where they can um, pull back. But as of now, that does not seem to be what uh, what's being planned for. Um, there's at this point only 23, I believe, Israeli fatalities uh, in in the invasion, um, but they haven't gone into the first tunnel yet, as far as we know. So it could still be uh, truly awful going forward on the Israeli side, and it's already awful on the side of Gaza. I can say, at least for my part in in the West, and I think there's a lot of people like me who. Uh, like to think that there's some trick up Israel's sleeve, like 1976 in Entebbe, that they're going to do some incredible rescue operation that no one thinks of and, and shocks the world. Is that a, a, is there any scenario where, I mean, I think there was one report uh, from probably a not trustworthy outlet that I saw some people on Twitter mention they're going to put some type of gas in the tunnels and they're going to, you know, put sleeping gas or something and, and go in there and try to rescue hostages and, and get rid of the, the terrorists. Is there any sense that there's some secret surprise that Israel has other than a conventional type of war that we saw in some cities in Iraq, like Fallujah and Mosul, that is really bloody and really brutal? It's funny how the speculation that you hear from, from both sides uh, sort of meets in the middle. So there was speculation in uh, a Qatari outlet which uh, is Qatar is a, a sponsor and friend of Hamas, saying uh, that uh, there's going to be gas that's that's piped into those tunnels and and everybody's going to be killed. Prepare for for the worst. Chemical weapons, um, and then yes, on the side of, of the Israelis, there's also thank goodness there's going to be chemical weapons. We're, we're going to pipe in who knows what, and it'll be a a, a magic elixir that. Uh, it is is going to allow us to to be victorious without massive casualties. Um, the, so much of this is is uh, either wishful thinking or or I don't know what the opposite of wishful thinking is. But you know, piping in a gas. You remember in the early two thousands, uh, in the earliest years of, of Putin's reign, there were, were uh, terrorists from the Caucasus who uh, seized the Opera House. Uh, and Putin piped in his special sauce, uh, probably some kind of early like fentanyl derivative. It killed most of the, uh, all the hostages, everybody was knocked out and a huge number of the hostages died too because if you give someone a gas that makes them fall asleep, there's a very good chance that they stop breathing too and they need to breathe. And so you have to go in there and, and if there's someone you want to save, pull them out. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, really, it's really, I think, Unless there's some uh, incredible secret innovation in anesthesiology that the Israelis haven't told us about, then um, it, it seems pretty unlikely that there's going to be a solution that that uh, that that allows the 
240 <laughs> hostages who are somewhere subterranean in Gaza to survive uh, that, that saves IDF soldiers from dying in large numbers and that neutralizes Hamas fighters without killing a whole bunch of civilians too. I don't see any way around this that, that, that keeps things from being pretty awful. Um, now there was, a, an, there's an IDF general named Yair Golan uh, who just a couple of days ago was on, uh, I believe it was army radio and who said, the IDF is not going into the tunnels. If you go into the tunnels, you die. Uh, luckily, we're not stupid. We knew those, these tunnels were there. And we do have plans to not go into the tunnel. Um, those tunnels will be death traps for Hamas. That was a, the most optimistic comment that I've seen from any uh, informed Israeli. Uh, I don't know physically how it's possible to not go in and to distinguish between uh, combatant, enemy combatants and the people you want to save. Well, I, mean, I guess there was a, a thought that once they run out of fuel, they need the fuel to operate lighting and I guess other oxygen type uh, devices in the tunnels that, you know, that that would be a, a death trap there. But is it the belief that most of the hostages are also in the tunnels as well? You know, I, I don't know um, if if I were uh, the type of person who had had no interest in following international uh, uh, humanitarian law. And I would absolutely bring my human shields in there in the tunnels with me. Uh, so it's, I think it's a reasonable expectation that, that they're down there. Now, Israel has basically encircled at this point, uh, Gaza City, uh, which is the, the, the stronghold of Hamas's fighters. And so it, it would be, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, if Israel decides, okay, we're, we're not going in those tunnels, but we, that encirclement is done. And now time is on our side. Uh, we will allow humanitarian aid, food to get in, but we're going to wait for you to pop up and, and say that you'd prefer to, to see daylight again rather than die slowly in, in those tunnels. Um, it'll, that, would be a, that might be a long wait. You're, you're not on the ground in, in Gaza, obviously. It's not easy to get on the ground in Gaza. Uh, is there any evidence that the Gazans... Uh, are blaming Hamas for the plight versus Israel or, or, you know, that there was, I remember during the Lebanon war, there was some anger at Hezbollah within Lebanon for bringing that massive destruction um, upon the country. Is there any evidence that, that it, it's really Hamas that's getting a large part of the blame for what's going on in Gaza? Jamie, it would be wrong of me to, to speculate on what uh, Gazans thinks so I'm not, not able to, to be there. Uh, and I, I will say this, uh, we know this is, this is demonstrated empirically that Hamas is, is pretty unpopular in Gaza. Uh, there's this funny crisscross that happens with, uh, public opinion in West Bank and Gaza with the Palestinian authority, which is, uh, in charge of the West Bank and Gaza, which is ruled by its enemy Hamas, where the Palestinian authority is relatively popular in Gaza, and Hamas is relatively popular in the West Bank. Um, and it really just has to do with, as far as I can tell, the fact that people don't like the people who are actively misgoverning them. <laughs> if, if you get someone who's ruling you and who's corrupt, you do not like them. Um, and so uh, it wouldn't be shocking if there's a, a lot of people in Gaza who are really angry at Hamas, there already were. 
Um, but that said, you also tend not to like the people who are bombing you <laughs> for much the same reasons. And so I wouldn't expect that that um, that that demonstrated political preference would extend to any charity toward uh, Israel, which, you know, uh, by all counts, has is, is killed thousands of people in Gaza so far in this war already. Regional war, that seems to be um, something that, that lurks as a fear in the background, uh, I would assume for Israel, uh, certainly uh, for even us in the United States, we don't want to see a, a large war break out. Today, Hassan Nasrallah, the, the leader of Hezbollah, uh, gave this much anticipated speech, which uh, did not seem like he was about to enter this conflict. Have you heard any reaction within Israel, whether that speech has kind of calmed the, 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 the potential fear of a, of, a, of a larger regional war? Uh, so that speech was just a couple hours ago. Uh, during the speech, I was listening on my phone I was walk as I was walking by Damascus Gate. I, I bought some kebabs in the street. The kebab seller was also watching on his phone while he was serving me. Um, I would say my reaction was uh, <laughs> deeply unimpressed. Um, his reaction, as I watched him listening to exactly the same words at the same time, was also um, unimpressed, even bored. Um, so I, I think that the the interpretation universally of that particular speech has has been um, pretty consistent, namely that it it was not a speech declaring uh, a new phase of of the war. It was more a speech uh, saying don't blame me for this. I'm in favor of it, but you know, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna sit back. Uh, I do think though, that the possibility of, of regional upheaval might be underrated. Uh, and it worries me a lot. Uh, there's just so much about, about this war that goes way beyond a incremental change in the politics of the region. Uh, it's way beyond what people predicted. Uh, including Israel, including Hamas. Uh, I don't think they expected that there would be an invasion after what they did. Um, and the invasion could be so bloody that it causes uh, um, an uprising that, that extends beyond the borders of Gaza, West Bank, and Israel. Um, think about, say, Egypt, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia. These are countries with... Um, in one case, a very large Palestinian population, and in the other cases, a lot of people who uh, are extremely sympathetic to to um, to Gaza, to the Palestinian cause, and um, in many cases are also uh, jihadist, even Isla uh, Islamist, and even jihadist in their orientation. So, I think those countries are they're always um, they're perennially concerned about popular discontent uh, and the potential for that discontent to rise to the level where it's a threat to the stability of the regimes that rule those countries uh, is there. Um, and if things get really, really bad, that's the level of upheaval that we're talking about. I'm going to get you out of here uh, with these last two questions. One is, uh, what is the, the feeling of how the United States has responded, the United States government? Uh, to October 7th, uh, what, how Joe Biden has responded on the ground. What, what do Israelis make of uh, the government's response? This is a complicated question because 
the United States uh, has not stopped Israel from doing what it what it's going to do. Um, it has counseled restraint. The the repeated visits from Secretary of State Antony Blinken are are read as being um, just try to hold back, try to hold back, please. Uh, but one aspect of the mentality of Israelis, I think, during the last month that it's hard for people to understand from the outside is how little they care about this. Um, of course, Israel wants to have friends uh, and certainly wants to satisfy its its closest ally, the United States. But there is a belief that we just don't have a choice in these matters. Uh, if you've got a statelet right next door that will, if it has the chance, do this, uh, that is happy that it did it, that says, as Hamas officials have said as recently as a few days ago, we're going to do it again and again and again, then yes, it would be nice to keep your allies happy, uh, but you just don't have a choice. You, you have to stop them. You have to go in and reduce their capabilities, the capabilities of Hamas to zero. And so the concern over American uh, elite and and mass opinion, uh, I don't know if it's ever been lower than it was uh, in the week or two after October 7th. I'm going to uh, end with this question. Uh, it sounds like there have been a number of things that have surprised you uh, since October 7th. Uh, is there anything in your reporting that has surprised you the most? The thing that surprised me the most uh, was probably the surprise in the days after October 7, the immediate aftermath of October 7, that uh, other fronts did not open up. Um, you know, just like on September 12, 2001, Americans were wondering, okay, what's next? Uh, is, is the anthrax next? Uh, our planes are on the ground, but what else could they do? Uh, there was a similar mood of wondering, uh, surely an enemy that is stealthy and smart enough to have outwitted the IDF on the border of Gaza had a plan for the next day. Uh, and that plan could be uh, ruinous for Israel. It could have been ruinous for Israel. That could have meant um, some kind of action in the West Bank that was unmanageable. Uh, it could have meant the entrance on October 8th of Hezbollah into the war. That would have been the moment to do it. If Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, who gave that speech today, really wanted to enter the war and make it matter, that would have been the day to do it. So I think that the, the biggest surprise was that None of that ever happened. And I, I think as as we, with almost a month's hindsight, look back on, on what, what, what Israel and uh, Gaza have been living through, that might be the most important thing to notice, was, was that um, this was a day of absolute catastrophic carnage. Um, but it was not, as far as we can tell, a day of uh, strategic thinking or a plan that uh, has is is unfolding um, and we Israel still has to sort of stagger around trying to get its bearings again but it does mean that the enemy that they're facing and the plan that they're trying to counter is not quite as quite as thought through as it, as it seemed like it might have been Graham Wood thank you for joining the dispatch podcast 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.